The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our songs have pointed us to the death of Christ, and we're approaching our series on the end of the book of Mark, and as we do so, we're returning to this long narrative that Mark leaves us of Jesus' death. And over the past few weeks, we've looked at a number of things. We've looked at Jesus' betrayal by Judas. We've looked at the agreement of the chief priests and the scribes that Jesus must be done away with. We've looked at the abandonment of Jesus' disciples as he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've looked at the uh, threefold denial of Christ by Peter, the, the cooked-up trial before the council. And now we, we arrive at uh, what I've considered the final stage, if you will, of Jesus' journey to the cross. Tonight, we want to focus on the condemnation of Jesus before Pilate and then his long walk to Golgotha that ends with Jesus hanging on the cross. And as we read this portion of Mark 15, I wanted to start just with a, a preliminary comment that I think there are really two dangers for us that we need to avoid when we read the account of Jesus' death. And the first din- uh, danger is that we would, in some ways, sensationalize the physical pain or agony that Jesus goes through on, on the cross. And there have certainly been many uh, attempts and many, many things that have highlighted the gruesome nature of what Jesus goes through. But if we sensationalize that, or if our primary focus is on sort of the, the, the deep physical pain, it's, we can certainly be impacted, but our hearts might be impacted more at just the horror of his grisly death than on what he's doing. So we want to make sure we avoid just a focus on how terrible the physical pain was. But I think the second danger, and, and this may be the greater danger for, for many of us, and that's the danger of just being desensitized to this story. How many times have you and I heard the fact that Jesus died on the cross or heard these details? We've heard this story thousands of times. Every Easter, for Good Friday and Easter, we hear the story of Jesus' death. We've told it hundreds of times to kids and grandkids, to Education Bible School. We've seen crosses on buildings and wear crosses on jewelry, and we see pictures of a serene Jesus hanging on crosses in art museums. And just over and over, we've, we've heard this story. And so we, we it sometimes, I think, get to a point where we say, what could possibly be said about the story of Jesus' death that I haven't already heard? Kent Hughes, one of the commentators, cites a passage in a, a Graham Greene novel. One in, in the novel, several uh, a character is overhearing a discussion between several friends about a, a friend of theirs who committed suicide. And in the discussion, they're sort of just calmly discussing his suicide and did he kill himself in the best way and these things. And this figure is sort of horrified by their calm discussion of suicide. And the, and the character makes this comment. He said, just as through 2,000 years we have discussed Christ's agony in just this disinterested way. 
I think that highlights how desensitized we can become. I was thinking about this myself this past week in my own devotions. I arrived at the the narrative of Jesus' death in Luke last week, and I was telling my wife, I I sort of arrived, it was sort of this droll boredom of, okay, I'm just going to read through this narrative because I've heard this so many times, I'm probably not going to get anything out of reading these chapters when I've read them so many times. And, And I was so convicted by that attitude. God's Spirit was very gracious, not only in my devotions, but now also giving me the opportunity to study this text and this story of Christ's death this week. I've been reminded multiple times as I meditated on this story that no matter how many times I have heard and read this story that Jesus Christ died on the cross, God continues to speak through his word to comfort my heart with the salvation I have in Christ and to renew my awe that the Son of God would die for sinners like myself. And so I want us to read this text not being desensitized to it. But as J.C. Ryle said, we always must read this text with a particular reverence, for it is the story of Jesus dying for our sins. So I just wanted to make those preliminary comments, but with those mi- that mindset, let's, with this particular reverence, read Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, And among the rebels that were in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. 
and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. God, you have given us this text, this text with the long details of your suffering on behalf of your people. I pray that your spirit would use this to remind us of the glory of our salvation and draw us near to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Here we are in Mark 15. By the time we arrive in Mark 15, Jesus has already suffered in plenty of different ways. Jesus has already been betrayed by one of his followers. He's already been denied and abandoned by his closest friends. He's already been arrested. He's already been condemned by false witnesses that spoke against him on cooked up charges. He's already been beaten by guards before being delivered over to Pilate. This is enough suffering for any of us to fathom if we were going through this ourselves. But for all this, the Jewish leaders had no power to make any ultimate decisions about Jesus. And so, here we arrive at chapter 15 with the Jewish leaders binding Jesus and delivering him over to Pilate, the Roman official who did have the authority to crucify or to kill Jesus as the Jews wished now, Pilate is an interesting figure. We know, we know a bit about Pontius Pilate from other historical sources and enough from other historical sources to say that this, this snapshot we have of Pilate in the Gospels fits perfectly with what we know of this man from Roman history. We know that Pilate was considered a somewhat inept administrator over his territory and his Roman province. We know that Pilate already, by this date, had gotten in trouble with the Jews and with Rome for having unnecessarily and unwisely provoked the Jews with a number of actions. He had, he had brought standards into the temple. He had allowed things to do that directly insulted the Jewish, whiz, uh, Jewish um, religion. And so Pilate is already a bit in hot water, both with the Jews and with Rome, for having stirred up the Jews and gotten them so mad. And so here's Pilate, somewhat inept, somewhat unwise, already in trouble, we know that Pilate was very motivated by his political career. In fact, uh, after this, several years after this, he made another unwise decision and attacked a group of religious observers in, in, uh, uh, in the same region of Judea. And uh, as a result, he was removed from his post, and he committed suicide when he was removed from his post. So this is Pilate. This is the man that, that Jesus is being brought before, but that gives us some background that's helpful to understand Pilate's position. Pilate is, is certainly uh, uh, skewered throughout Christian history for giving into the crowds, but I think any one of us who's already in hot water at work, who has already been blamed or, or, or perhaps been, been doubted and gotten, gotten people mad at him, we understand his desire to say, hey, I've already provoked the Jews several times. If this happens again, if word gets back to Rome again that there's another reason the Jews are mad at me, I'm really going to be in trouble. And so here's Pilate trying to keep the Jews happy so that he can keep Rome happy and do his job. And here comes Jesus to stand before Pontius Pilate. 
Well, verses 2 through 15 detail Pilate's attempts to release Jesus. Pilate, we're, we're told over and over again, clearly believes in Jesus' innocence. He's amazed by Jesus' refusal to answer the volley of accusations against him. And if you picture maybe a, a typical controversy or a typical uh, trial scene where, where you have an accusation, you have one side heaping on accusations and the other side defending them and making counter accusations, and you have this argument, and a judge's role often is to moderate this argument, this back and forth, attack, defense, attack, defense. This is not what's happening. Here's Jesus standing there as the Jews launch attack after attack, and Jesus has no answers at all. He has nothing that he wants to respond. And this amazes Pilate. And you can almost see Pilate saying, here's this man quietly and calmly listening to these accusations. This is not the typical insurrectionist who's stirring up a mob. This is not the type of person who has probably been out stirring people up against Rome. This is something unlike what Pilate had heard. But since the Jews are insistent, Pilate has to decide what to do. And if you follow the text carefully, you can actually see Pilate making several attempts to release Jesus. And I could, you can sort of imagine Pilate saying, aha, I've got it. I know how I'm going to get this guy released and still keep the Jews happy. And his first brilliant idea is that he is going to use this tradition of releasing a criminal to the crowds. This was a common habit throughout Rome that at at festivals where the people would be celebrating a a Roman official might release a prisoner, a a prisoner to, uh, to the people. And Pilate clearly had that tradition. And so perceiving, the text tells us, perceiving that the Jewish leaders were jealous of Jesus, Pilate tries to circumvent the Jewish leaders and go to the crowd and say, crowd, you want me to release a prisoner. How about the king of the Jews? And Pilate's saying, great, he's innocent. I don't want to upset the Jewish leaders, but if I can pin it on the crowds so that the crowds get me to release him, that'll be perfect. It's a decent idea, especially if he's right, and he is, that the Jewish leaders were jealous of Jesus' position. But unfortunately, the Jewish leaders have already beat him to the punch, and they've already stirred up the crowd and implanted the idea that the crowd should ask for Barabbas, this zealot that had been arrested for murder rather than Jesus. And you could imagine how this would appeal to the crowds. We know that for many of them, Rome's rule was the most oppressive uh, thing many of them faced. And so why not ask for the guy who's already been sort of actively, actively fighting on behalf of Rome or uh, on behalf of the Israelites, killing the Roman soldiers or guards and and sort of starting this anti, anti anti-Roman work. Why not ask for him instead of Jesus, this guy who, you know, he heals the blind and he challenges our interpretations of scripture, but what's he actually done for, for freeing us from Rome? And so the people quickly latch on to the Jews' idea and ask for Barabbas. Pilate says, well, that, what then shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they only meet his questions with crucify him. And every time Pilate demands a reason, why, why, what has he done? The only response is crucify him crucify him. Pilate does have one more idea up his sleeve, and that is that he has Jesus scourged. In Mark's text, kind of, uh, he, he just briefly mentions that Pilate has Jesus scourged before delivering him to be crucified, but John's gospel plays it out a little bit more specifically for us, and I think it makes it clear that Pilate's second attempt here is to take Jesus 
And the Jewish charge is that he's making himself a king and making himself this, this leader, proclaiming to be this son of God. And, and Pilate's idea seems to be, if I can whip this man and disfigure him and make him appear as frail and as helpless as possible, then surely the crowds will realize he's no threat. He's no great king, no son of God who's going to lead them. And maybe that will calm them to see this man punished and flogged and, and incapable of doing anything. And then maybe they will, they will let him go. But as John's gospel makes clear, they only continue their demands for his crucif- crucifixion. And so after all of his attempts, Pilate finally caves to the pressure of the Jewish leaders, despite his affirmation of Jesus' innocence, and he hands Jesus Christ over to be crucified. Now, much has been made of Pilate's greater concern for himself and what people think of him than the truth of Jesus' innocence, but I want to spend really our time focusing on what Jesus would have experienced. I want to think not so much what was Pilate's error here, but what is it that Jesus is going through as he goes through this process in these verses and on into verses 16 to 32. Try to put yourself in Jesus' place and imagine his experience and what he goes through here. Yes, we know Jesus' physical suffering, but consider the emotional and relational and psychological suffering that Jesus goes through throughout this trial process. Try to imagine from a human perspective what Jesus feels and suffers. Because remember, Jesus suffers in every way that humans do. And as we consider the breadth of Jesus' suffering here, not just the physical suffering, we'll have a better understanding of what our Savior has gone through for us. This text clearly shows that Jesus is the victim of a bad judge who renders an unfair decision. Now, I've never stood before a judge in a courtroom before, So my closest experience to this probably was in high school, in college, when I was on a debate team. And in a debate team, you'd have one team facing another in a a debate competition, and you'd have one person who's the judge who listens to you debate back and forth, and at the end of your, your debate round, they determine, they make a decision over who wins and who loses the round. And certainly, as you can imagine, there were times when we would feel as a debate team like we won this round so clearly and everyone in the room who was listening said, you won that round. And yet the judge would say, no, the other team would won the round. And maybe there wasn't even much justification given on their, their ballot. And, and I can remember driving home thinking, what were they thinking? You know, how could that judge do that? That was so unfair. And maybe sometimes that loss kept us from, from going on in, in a competition or, or competing for a championship in the tournament. And so I can remember that feeling of that's not fair. Think of what that bad decision cost me. Of course, that's a debate round in high school. That's nothing compared to a real unfair decision from a real bad judge. I just heard a story the other day from a family in another country. And as you know, in many countries, the judicial system is completely corrupt and subsists on bribes and who will bribe the judge or the official the most. And this story talked about a family that needed a document confirming that their son was under 18, which he was. He was 17. But the official in charge would only issue the document if the family paid him the stated bribe that he was asking for. Well, the family couldn't pay and they couldn't get their document. Think of their anger and frustration, their sense of hurt and injustice when a judge declares their child ineligible for a needed benefit when he does actually qualify it for it just because the official won't, won't be honest and requires bribe money. 
I can just imagine the sense of hurt and injustice and the burden and and pain and frustration of that. But of course, that's nothing to compare to having your life on the line and having a judge, the one person put in position to protect you, cave to the opinions of your enemies and declare repeatedly that you are innocent and yet still decide to condemn you to the most painful torture and death yet invented. The pain here is more than physical. It's the pain of suffering injustice. It's the pain of watching a judge, a bad judge, render an unfair decision that costs you your life. That process is painful. Of course, this unfair decision comes about because Jesus was accused by false witnesses who said things that were obviously lies about him. Mark 14:56, we heard in the previous text, tells us that the chief priest drummed up false witnesses who testified lies against Jesus, and their testimonies didn't even agree with one another. In Luke's account of the trial before Pilate, one of the key accusations that the Jews bring against Jesus is that he is stirring up the people to disobey Caesar and not pay tribute to him. Well, if you remember, we know that that's a lie. We read in the text just before that Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So here's Jesus having false things told about him, false witnesses telling lies about things that he did not do. Well, maybe, th- maybe some of you have experienced it when someone says that you have done something that you haven't done or someone suspects that you have done something that you haven't done. Someone says, I think you did this. I believe you did this. And they start to tell people, hey, you... Chris did this, and it's not true. But do you know the burden that you feel when someone believes you have done something wrong that you haven't done? There's this tremendous weight on your heart, not not just because of potential consequences, but because of the emotional burden of knowing that people around you believe you are guilty and telling telling others that you're guilty of something you haven't done. Here's Jesus, falsely accused, watching the crowds believe he is guilty. It's another part, another layer on his suffering. Well, then we get to verse 16. And we get to verse 16 after Pilate agrees to hand Jesus over for crucifixion. And the soldiers, the entire battalion, an entire battalion is likely close to 500 soldiers that would have been stationed at the governor's headquarters, are gathered around. They're summoned. This is like the, the, the high school or the, the middle school bullies who summon everyone to gather around so that they can mock the poor student They are picking on. But here they are, 500 soldiers gathered around, probably soldiers who hadn't had much to do, who are going to take their day's entertainment out on Jesus to mock him, hit him, spit on him, laugh at him, beat him. Here's another layer of suffering falling on Jesus' soldiers. Not only does he have long thorns jammed into his head when we read that they put the crown of thorns on him in verse 17. Not only do they laugh at him, but they they laugh at his pain, mock his true claims, and humiliate him in front of others. I'm not sure about you, but in the the history of of my teaching career, there are few things that would raise my anger, like seeing a group of middle school boys mocking or picking on a less popular student at school. And certainly this can happen at any number of ages, but late, 
late elementary school seems to be sort of the prime target for this to happen. And when you, when you see this group of students gathered around the, the less popular, perhaps uh, student who doesn't fit in well, and they're mocking him and they're digging him and they're ribbing him and they're making fun of him and they're publicly humiliating him, it makes me furious because it is inflicting emotional pain and psychological pain as the student is rejected by his peers. And any one of you, I think, can can sympathize with this and and know that feeling of of watching that mockery. And perhaps some of you know deeply that experience of being mocked and humiliated in front of others. Here is Jesus standing before 500 soldiers. The Son of God himself undergoing the worst form of mockery at the hands of pagan soldiers. And this, this continues. This continues on the cross when all of the Jews watching a man suffer what many consider to be the worst physical torture that a man could have gone through at this time. They look at him going through that, and what do they do? They laugh at him, and they mock him. They click their tongues and said, well, you said you could save other people. Why don't you save yourself? Oh, well, guess you can't. Too bad. That's their commentary and their attitude as he hangs on the cross near death. This is suffering. That happens all aside from the serious physical pain of being, we see Jesus also carrying a cross, being nailed with spikes to a beam of wood and undergoing the intense physical torture of death by overwhelming pain and suffocation that was part of crucifixion. I want us to see layer after layer after layer of suffering that Jesus goes through. And of course, we haven't even talked about what will come front and center in next week's passage, and this, that's the spiritual suffering of being abandoned by his heavenly Father. Well, why try to understand? Why take time to understand and feel the weight and the burden and the extent of Jesus' sufferings? Why take the time to try to feel the breadth of Jesus' sufferings if we just said at the beginning tonight that we don't want to sensationalize the, the gore or the, the suffering of, of the cross? Well, I think there's a couple of things to be said. One, one key reason for us to dwell on these things is because the text of Scripture dwells on these things. If you look at the way that all four Gospels handle Jesus' death, they take immense time and spend great detail talking about the suffering that Jesus went through. And so I think it's appropriate for us to follow Scripture's lead and looking at the detail and all the layers of the sufferings of Christ through his trial, judgment, and crucifixion. But in addition, I think there are at least four reasons, four applications, if you will, four things that we gain a greater understanding of by dwelling on the sufferings of Christ. And that's what I want to look at now, four things that we gain a greater understanding of as we dwell on all the layers and the breadth of what Jesus suffered. So first, First, this passage, as it details the layers of Christ's sufferings, gives us a greater understanding of the depth of God's love for us. Kent Hughes, as he comments on this passage, says that Jesus' suffering, and particularly Jesus' suffering, has always been a window into his heart, into the heart of God. We see God's love for us. We see God's heart through Jesus' suffering in a unique way that we don't see in other parts of Jesus' lives. So what do we see through this window? If Jesus' sufferings are a window, what do we see when we look through? Well, if we only consider the fact of Jesus' suffering, we will certainly see the horror of what he goes through. But we have to consider why 
Jesus went through this physical suffering for us to see his heart. If we consider the why of what Jesus went through, then the vision we get through this window should overwhelm us. Because Jesus went through physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering, psychological suffering, spiritual suffering, this breadth and depth of suffering. He went through it voluntarily. Why? Because he so loved the world. Why? Because he was so committed to his people and he so longed to be reconciled to his people. He was so committed to bringing back his people whom he loved that he was willing to go through every detail of what we have just read. He was willing to go through all of this and more because his love is the infinite love of God himself and because he longed to rescue those who are his. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, The sufferings described in this passage would fill our minds with mingled horror and compassion if they were inflicted on one who was just a man like ourselves. But when we reflect that this sufferer was the eternal Son of God, we are lost in wonder and amazement. And when we reflect further that these sufferings were voluntarily endured to deliver sinful, rebellious men and women like ourselves from hell, maybe we begin to see something of Paul's meaning when he says that the love of Christ passes our knowledge. Because I don't think that I have yet loved, or I don't even know if I'm capable of loving, to the depth and to the extent of what we see from the Son of God in this passage as he goes through this suffering for the purpose of getting sinful, rebellious people and restoring them to fellowship with in with himself. And so, brothers and sisters, let this passage, let the sufferings of Jesus Christ in all their breadth and depth rekindle our wonder and our awe at the love of God that he poured out on us through Jesus Christ, his son. Well, second, this passage becomes, in all of its detail of Jesus' suffering, a motivation for our own obedience. And this flows straight from what we've just said. The height and the breadth and the depth of this kind of love for us cannot help but urge us to love this Savior too. Any one of us knows that if someone does something immensely kind for us and demonstrates their love for us, we tend to feel a desire to love them in return. But this is love that goes beyond what we have experienced in any other relationship. I always think when I read this story and as I'm thinking of, of, of myself and other human analogies, I always think of the novel, The Count of Monte Cristo. Some of you have read that novel or, or seen the movie that was, was made or one of several of them. And here the main character, Edmond Dantes, is forced into a knife fight with a pirate. And Edmond wins the knife fight but spares the pirate's life and does not kill him like everyone expected him to. And at that moment, the pirate gets up and declares that he will never leave Edmund and he is Edmund's servant forever because someone who would spare his life deserves the commitment of his life. What a great picture. Christ's love. Christ's love not only spares our lives, Christ's love pursues us and comes and gets us. Christ's love rescues us at the cost of his own life and not only rescues us but comes as the perfect son of God to find sinners and pull them out of the mire of their own punishment. As J.C. Ryle argues, no object in all Christianity 
is so likely to have a sanctifying effect on our souls when we're struggling to fight sin as when we look at the cross of Jesus and consider all that he suffered on our behalf. When we're apathetic in our walk with our Savior, when we're struggling to fight sin, when we consider the extent of the suffering of Jesus Christ and consider the love of our Savior for us, we will find the strength and the grace and the growing desire towards obedience. So in our struggle with sin and our desire for growth and sanctification, consider the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the love that he has for us that is evident in this passage. Behold the heart of God. The sufferings of Jesus show us God's heart of the depth of his love. They motivate us towards our own obedience. Third, this passage also gives us strong hope in the face of our own sin. I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure how you think through your own sins and your own failings. But I know that for myself, when I consider all that Christ has done for me, when I consider the extent of his sufferings for me and the blessings that he's poured out on me, and when I think of my own repeated failures, sometimes the only thing that I can think is shame. I can only be frustrated with myself. I can only keep asking why. Why would I be so filled with sin? Why am I making such little progress in my life of sanctification? When Christ went through all of that, how, how am I supposed to think about my own repeated failures? And sometimes I get bogged down with discouragement and shame at my little progress. And sometimes I begin to ask questions like, how can I be making so little progress in this area of my sin when I've seen what Jesus has done for me? I've talked to others who, who say, I, I begin to ask, am I really even a Christian? Because if I really knew and loved Jesus, why am I struggling so much? But the sufferings of Jesus are actually a comfort for us. The sufferings of Jesus meet us with hope in the face of our sin. Yes, my sin is heinous and it does deserve punishment, even death. But Jesus Christ was crucified in my place. And so when we're reading through chapter 15, when we're reading through this passage and we come and we come to the verse that says, and they crucified him in verse 24. Or again in 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. Or maybe even when we get down to verse 32, 31 and 32, when we hear he saved others, he cannot save himself. And they crucified him. We are seeing Jesus Christ hung on the cross to take the punishment that our sin deserves. I am not wrong in feeling the guilt of my own sin in one sense. I am guilty. I am a sinner. But here is Jesus Christ who took that pain and punishment for me. Here is Jesus Christ who hung on the cross to take the punishment that I deserved. I think it's very ironic, verse 31, the Jews look at Jesus Christ and they say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. The irony, of course, is that Jesus would not save himself precisely so that he could save others. There on the cross as they say, look, if Christ would just save himself, then we would believe in him. The irony is that Jesus would not save himself. And that is our very hope. Our very hope is that the Savior, the Son of God, was not willing to give up his sufferings. He desired and willed to go through all of these sufferings so that he would save us from our sin. 
And so when I face my own sin, when I face the guilt of what I have done, the passage here reminds me, of course Jesus was capable of saving himself. He could have, he could have saved himself from any one of these sufferings, and yet he didn't. Why did he go on through every step of this suffering? To save me from my sin. I think in many ways, this, this story we have of Barabbas is a great illustration. It's a great parable, if you will, of the hope that we have. It says in verse 11, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd that Pilate would release Barabbas instead of Jesus. Barabbas is guilty. Jesus is innocent. And yet Barabbas was released and set free, and Jesus was condemned to death. As I was reading a number of commentators for this passage, there is a strong tradition in ancient history, not something we can confirm from Scripture, but a strong tradition that the three crosses on Golgotha were already set up, and the middle cross was for Barabbas, but it ended up being used for Jesus. Is that true? I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But Barabbas here in this little incident is a great illustration and a parable for us. When I am faced with the guilt of my own sin, Jesus Christ suffered and died that I might be set free. Christ has died for my sin. He has been punished in my place, not just so that I could become a Christian, but also so that my continued sins and failures would be covered and washed clean by his blood. And so in this passage, as it details the sufferings of Christ, I find hope. I find hope and I find comfort of the forgiving, cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. We see the love of God. We're motivated towards obedience. We find hope in the face of our sin. But finally, finally, this passage offers both an explanation and a comfort for us when we go through sufferings. When we go through sufferings and we ask why, when we go through sufferings and we face the pain of what we're walking through, this passage provides both an explanation and a comfort. It provides a comfort, first of all, because as Hebrews tells us, Jesus Christ has been tempted and he has suffered in every way, and yet he has gone without sin. So what is your suffering? Again, often we focus on the physical suffering of Jesus being nailed to the cross and everything that he went through as part of the crucifixion. But think of the breadth of his suffering, what he's gone through in being mocked, abandoned, beaten, suffering under an unfair judge, false witnesses against him. The breadth of Jesus' sufferings reminds us that our Savior has gone through it all. He has paved the way for us and our sufferings. But it's more than that. It's much more than that. It is certainly a comfort to know that Jesus suffered in ways that we suffer, but this is so much more. Because the consistent testimony of the New Testament is that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ have been united to Christ so that what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. That's what union with Christ means. So when Paul says, by faith we've been united to Christ, it means we've been joined to Jesus so that what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. It's kind of like a marriage. And you think of a marriage. When two people are married, what's true of one becomes true of the other. If a poor man marries a rich woman, when they are married, the poor man becomes rich. What is true of one becomes true of another. That's what a union's like, and that's what happens with Jesus Christ. So when we're united to Jesus by faith, because Christ lives forever in the presence of God, we will live forever in the presence of God because we're united to Christ. But think about what else this means. If being united to Christ means that with what is true of Jesus becomes true of us, 
then we ought to expect that our time walking on a fallen earth will include suffering and death because that is what Jesus went through. If we are united to Christ so that what is true of him becomes true of us, then the pattern you and I should expect from life is that we walk through earth suffering and go through death, but we have hope of resurrection life because we're united to Christ. That was his pattern. That should be our expectation of our pattern. And this is what Paul says over and over. Maybe you think of Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says this. He desires that he might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear Paul's desire? that I may be like Christ, sharing in his sufferings and his death so that I might also share in resurrection and glory. Or maybe you think of Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. There's our union with Christ. We're co-heirs together with him. But here's what Paul says. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see the pattern? When we're united with Christ, we expect that our time on this earth will be filled with suffering and then death, but we'll then have hope and resurrection and glory. That's the pattern of Christ. That's the pattern that we walk through. And this is so helpful for me when I think of suffering that I walk through and when I consider the sufferings that those around me walk through because it reminds me that I am walking the path that Christ walks. It reminds me of my union with Christ, my Savior, who walked through suffering that he might attain resurrection and glory. Jesus Christ can sympathize with me because he's undergone all the depth of suffering and more than I could ever undergo. Jesus Christ is with me because my sufferings are part of my union with him. And there is hope of salvation and glory after my sufferings because Jesus has already paved the way and shown us where this path leads if we are united to him. If we are united to him, the path you and I walk is through this earth we suffer and we will then die. But in uniting with Christ, we have hope of resurrection and glory. And so whatever suffering you and I undergo, this passage that details the horrors of Jesus' sufferings, I find in it such great comfort and hope because it provides an explanation. This passage tells us that our response to suffering is not just suck it up. Christ went through worse. And sometimes we hear that that's the application for suffering. That's not what this passage tells us. This passage says you are united to Jesus. And so find in him the reason, the hope, the purpose, the example, and the pattern that we will walk. We will walk through suffering and even through death. But in our union with Christ, we go through it with resurrection and glory on the other side. The focus on Jesus' suffering is a window into the heart of the infinite love of God our Savior. It's a motivation for us towards obedience and sanctification. It is deep hope for us in the face of our struggle with sin. And it offers an explanation and a comfort, and a hope in the midst of sufferings that we walk through. Isn't this a precious story? It is a precious, precious story. I pray that we would never be desensitized to it. As many of you know, the songwriter talks about this as the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And it is old. 
It is old and it is familiar and it's perhaps easy for us to hear it with desensitized hearts and ears. But I pray not. I pray not because the sufferings of Christ are the definitive proof of God's love that we need to be reminded of regularly. They are the daily motivation for our obedience and growth and righteousness. They are a comfort in the face of our ongoing sin and they are an explanation and a hope in the midst of suffering. So I I pray that you and I would find that this old, old story brings us new and renewed strength, grace, hope, and joy in our Savior tonight, today, and in the week to come. Let's pray. Father, Father, you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, and what sufferings he went through. I pray that we would not miss all that Jesus went through, all of the ways that he suffered as a man, not because we want to to sensationalize or sentimentalize all that he went through, but so that we would understand and so that we would know the love of our God and our King, the sacrifice that he has already paid on behalf of our sin, the pattern he has laid out for us. And then as we get to resurrection hope, I pray that we would be thrilled with joy at the hope that we have in this Savior. Lord, would you be with us and remind us of this today and in the week to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.